and it's Dellingpod. That is really good. So exciting. Welcome, welcome everyone to the Dellingpod with my, I'm so excited about this week's guest, my very special guest, Brendan O'Neill. Brendan, you, you, are, you are so solid and reliable and, and wonderful. I, 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 I feel really lucky to have got you. You're, you're, a, you're a crowd puller. Okay. Um, well. And can I say that you are one of the few good men or women left? <laughs> you know, the, the analogy I often use is, is we're at Bastogne mm. and we're being surrounded by various SS panzer divisions and, yeah. and, and we're holding the line. And it's really important that every man stays in his foxhole, foxhole to guard, guard the position for you know, everyone else. And a few weeks ago, little, we lost Rod. He he, he 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 surrendered to he, he surrendered to this this notion that that the uh, regretfully that he was going to have to support Theresa May's um, yeah. glitter dipped turd of it. Uh, but you've stayed solid. Yeah. Tell me tell me why. Um, why? Because Brexit is the most important issue in the whole world right now. And uh, if we lose on Brexit, I think it will be a massive defeat for all the things that people like us are interested in, which is defending freedom, defending democracy, uh, fighting back against the forces of political correctness, the forces of bureaucracy, all these kind of bad forces that are uh, abroad in the world. Um, defending Brexit, I think, is, is the front line in all of this stuff. And it's funny that you mentioned the SS because I am one of those people. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm always really reluctant. You're always mentioning the SS. I'm always really, I'm really reluctant to use the word fascism, and Nazism unless you're talking about actual fascists and actual Nazis. So I never use the word feminazi. I know you do. No offence. I, I don't like it when words like Nazi and fascist are attached to people who aren't actually Nazi and fascist. But the closest I have ever come to using the word fascist is in relation to Ramonas. They are the most unpleasant, authoritarian, anti-democratic, illiberal wankers yeah. in <laughs> right at this. There's no other, but you know, it, and we have to uh, really appreciate the seriousness of the situation we're in, which is that we have the reactionary middle classes marching in their thousands in the streets calling on the government to dispense with democratic mandate and to rule by diktat. That's a terrifying thing that's happened in the past. We have the police last week calling on campaigners and journalists to tone down their Brexit rhetoric, lest anyone be kind of whipped into a frenzy of anger with a political class. That's a dangerous precedent. We have MPs saying, oh, we know you all voted for this thing but we don't actually think it's a good thing, so we're not going to make it happen. That's a dangerous precedent that's, that we know from the past too. So uh, I feel like the great irony of Ramona's is that they go on and on about how people like us who support Brexit are far right and crazy and authoritarian yeah. and mental, when all those words are far better descriptions of them than they are of us. So I actually feel quite scared about the period we're living in. I think we're living through a petty, bourgeois, reactionary, revolting assault on democracy and freedom 
which people are talking about in this building right now, the new European and all those people. Mm. And I think we have to stand up to it in any way we can. I certainly have experienced um, horridness from, from various <coughs> leading lights of the Ramona movement. I mean, I saw Andrew Adonis in the corridor. I don't want to diss him because I think this is a friendly, a friendly atmosphere. But they are quite under, underhand and in a way that I don't think we are. And yeah. this has been demonstrated by, by a survey which, which, which showed that Remainers are much, m much more intolerant of us than we are of them. For example, Remainers say, I would not, if, if my daughter were to marry a Brexiteer, I, I wouldn't have it. I just wouldn't have it. You know, it's, it's, it's a <laughs> bit like the old days. People used to say, if, if, if my daughter right, married black a black man, yeah, I, I, right. I just wouldn't do it. How do you explain that, that gulf of intolerance? The, you know, the thing is that they don't think that they are on the cusp of fascism. <laughs> they actually think they're good people. Yeah. They think they're nice, they think they're decent, they think we're the scum of the earth. Because I think it's the self-righteousness. I think when you're that self-righteous and you're so convinced you're right on everything and you're so convinced everyone else is an idiot that you have no space left for self-reflection or reason even. So I think they've jettisoned all of that, which is why I think one of the great liberal values is to always uh, entertain the possibility that you might be wrong, yeah. right? That's a really important thing to do. Always th you should spend your whole life in a sense of self-doubt, in a way. Uh, that's, you know, the beginnings of freedom of speech. The argument for open debate is all premised on the idea that maybe I'm wrong, maybe someone else is right, so let's have the debate out. They've completely lost connection with any idea like that. They are utterly convinced they're right. They're utterly convinced that people who voted Brexit are stupid, xenophobic, uh, uh, racist, uneducated, idiotic plebs. I mean, they talk about these people in the most contemptible way imaginable. Um, and they think they're right. And you could really see that on the People's Vote demo in London a couple of weeks ago. The placards were astonishing. That I saw so m I was there taking photos and laughing at people. And you were on the, on the stage talking? I was on the stage at the pro-Brexit one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the pro-Brexit one a week later, which was far more friendly. As you say, we're a friendlier bunch. But on the People's Vote one, People's Vote in quote marks, of course, because really it's just a forced second referendum to try and demoralise the electorate. That's the longer description of it. Um, on this People's Vote demo, there were one guy had a placard saying, we'll always be a part of Europe, you idiots. Trust me, I've got a geography degree. Another oh, dear. <laughs> so so Theresa May, by the so way. So Theresa May. Yeah. Look what happened to her. Another placard said, um, oh, look, um, correctly spelt placards and, and correctly, you know, correct grammar on our yeah. placards. Isn't that surprising? It, you know, translated into we're clever and the rest of the country are a bunch of idiots. So there is this um, haughty disdain for anyone who disagrees with them, which is the majority of the country. And when you're in that position, when you have that kind of um, unfounded self-conviction that you are the super, super clever, wonderful, morally correct person, you just lose the capacity to make judgments and to reason and to engage in debate. And I think that's what's happened to Ramonas. While we're on the theme of dissing Ramonas, <coughs> my favorite um, thing. <laughs> have you noticed, of course you have, that when you ask Ramonas why it is they want to remain in the European Union, they can never really yeah. advance a very convincing case. It, it seems to me that their case is built entirely on how disgusting people who vote yes. Brexit are. They're really unpleasant. And I, I, I've been pondering long and hard about the friends I've lost because of, of, of Brexit. We've got this, this friend who lives on, 
Yeah, why, why can't I mention it? She, li- she has, a, has a, a sort of tied cottage on the estate where I live. And uh, naturally, you know, in a small community, y- y- when, when somebody suddenly cuts you dead when they're walking along the path where you walk your dog, it's a bit disturbing. And the reason we've fallen out is over Brexit. And mm. I was trying to think why it is that she could suddenly go from <coughs> my friend to not my friend. What is it? And I think it's that thing that Remainers think that... Um, we Brexiteers are, we're genuinely racist. Mm. We are not forward-looking, we're not progressive, we are not, we are not modern, we are reactionary and, mm. and, and primitive and ugly. I think that's a really important point because um, if you think back before 2016, before the referendum, these kind of people weren't going on about the EU very much at all. I never heard anyone talk about it. The only people I heard talk about the EU were people who were Eurosceptic. Uh, which included me, who were very concerned about the European Union and so would read a lot about it and would talk a lot about it and would have arguments about it. But all these people who've suddenly taken to the streets in their thousands, kind of literally crying in the streets and their blue paint running down their faces, <laughs> they, never, they never talked about the EU before 2016. No. You think, hold on, where were you people? And uh, that, that explains two things. Firstly, that explains why actually Brexit voters tend to be better informed about the EU than remain than Ramona's, which is kind of counterintuitive, but that's the case, because the people who voted Brexit or the people who were Eurosceptic for a long period of time tended to follow EU affairs more closely. They would read about it, they would get angry about it, they would talk about it with their friends and so on. Whereas Ramona's never talked about the EU for years and years and years. And the second thing it tells us is that you're absolutely right. The, the reason they flipped, the reason they've suddenly fallen head over heels in love with the European Union is is precisely as a form of, I can't remember, it was some French philosopher who referred to it as moral distinction. This, pro, this situation where you morally distinguish yourself from others, from other groups, from you know, the scum of society. So you have to always find a mechanism through which to exercise that sense of moral distinction. That's what they've done with the EU. So really what they're doing when they say they love the EU, they don't know the first thing about the EU. Um, if they did, they wouldn't love it. They, you wouldn't love an institution that destroyed the Greek working classes. You wouldn't love an institution which enforced an unelected technocratic government above the heads of the Italian voters. You wouldn't love an institution which forced the Irish government to do economic things it didn't want to do. You wouldn't love an institution which uh, talks about having freedom of movement, but actually it's the racist elevation of one group of migrant workers, i.e. European migrant workers who are 98% white, over another group of migrant workers, including Indian workers or African workers and so on. And the one reason that one third of ethnic minority voters in Britain voted for Brexit is because they were, precisely because they were worried about the racist unfairness of the European system of migration, which means a Bulgarian plumber can come here despite having no connections to this country, but their aunt can't come here despite having seven family members in Leicester or Bradford or London or wherever else it might be. So uh, no one could possibly love this institution. It is a foul, corrupt, deplorable oligarchy which is completely outside of the realm of democracy. So their love for it is really an expression of their hatred for their fellow citizens and for the rest of the country. And it's the way in which they morally distinguish themselves. We're the good members of British society because we're pro-EU. You're the bad members of British society because you're anti-EU. That's really what this boils down to. 
I think one of the reasons that you're so good at articulating the case for Brexit is that you are a proper man of the people, aren't you? I mean, you are, you are actually a working class oik. I, I and you didn't go to university. And you play the, the Marxist card. The I Marxist mean, card. No, yeah. Tell me, are you, are you actually a Marxist still? I still say I'm a Marxist, just really just to wind people yeah, yeah. up. Um, I was a Marxist for a long time. I started my journalist career on a magazine called Live in Marxism, which was a wonderful magazine. Um, I was in the Revolutionary Communist Party, which I joined when I was 19 years old, um, and then it disbanded like two years later. I hope it wasn't connected to me. Um, and I am a working class oik. My parents, uh, my mum and dad are Irish immigrants, working class Irish immigrants from the west of Ireland to London. Um, I said on Politics Live on the BBC recently that I come from Irish peasant stock and people went absolutely berserk. Did they? But it's Excellent. true. I, my grandmother was a peasant. She used to ride donkeys, all sorts of things. So it's true. <laughs> I can't help it. Um, so that's all true. And um, uh, one of the things that... But, but, I, but I've argue, I argued this in The Spectator a few years ago. I think that, uh, like long before Brexit, I think one of the most fascinating things about the current climate, and this might be summed up by this stage right here, is that we're, we have a Chav-Toff alliance. That's the that's a, a kind of rebel and Billy Connolly used to make this point in one of his stand-up gigs. He used to say, um, working-class people and upper-class people have something in common. They love drinking. They're a bit rebellious. They give their children weird names. He, he talked about the commonalities <laughs> between poor people and rich and upper-class people. And he said the problem are the middle classes. Hmm. Who d no offence, I'm sure there's lots of really Although. nice middle-class people here. But they're the ones who tend to look down their noses at the working classes because they think they're stupid and racist and fat and unhealthy and all that kind of stuff. They look down their noses at the upper classes who they think they're kind of debauched and disgusting and overly bourgeois. Um, and so they go through life with this constant snooty disdain for you know, these two sections of society. And of course, who voted for Brexit? The poor and the rich. That's really what it boils down to. Brexit was an alliance in many ways between very working class Labour voters um, and kind of home counties types. It was a very strange alliance, but a very fascinating alliance. Whereas everyone who went to university and lives in London or Brighton or the middle of Manchester or, or wherever else it might be voted remain. So, um, Yes, uh, that's exactly the background I come from, but what I find really interesting is that I do see myself very often these days having a lot in common with very posh Tories, which is not something yeah. that I thought would ever happen. So when I spoke at the pro-Brexit rally in London, I was sharing the stage with people who were far posher and far more right-wing than I am, and I'm perfectly happy to do that because I think defending Brexit is the key issue of our times. Can I just say, in the interest of, of truth and reality, I'm not actually that posh. I, 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 it's, it's a it sort on. of, it's a persona <laughs> I've assumed. I, 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 see, I, I went to the village school in the Midlands, in, in, in Birmingham, and uh, I used to have a, 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 a Midlands accent. I did, and um, I, I, I'm not sure I ever said it, or I did, but, but, but <laughs> definitely I'm not, I'm not a top. But, I, but I, I do hear what you say. One of the, one of the curiosities I find about this, uh, this Brexit um, propaganda war, this idea that somehow it's all the fault of the Etonians. Well, yeah. actually, most Etonians I know <laughs> are bloody Remainer, uh, Remaintards, or whatever you want to call them. <laughs> and and when, when, um, when Eton had, had, when the boys voted 
on, on, on Brexit. I think it was the split was 34, mm. 66, something like that. Um, because obviously, Pater, with his large estates, which probably benefit from um, various European grants, Pater doesn't want the boat rocked at all. Um, it's, I, th I, I think it's the sort of yeomen of the shires who are generally, generally in alliance with yeah, the... Yeah, that's true. I, I, I actually think that's true. I, I've spoken at Eton a few times, and I'm always quite shocked at how PC it's become. Oh, my God. They're always, they've always got people in from like everyday feminism stuff to educate the boys about not to be such rotters. And so it's becoming increasingly PC. And whenever I've spoken there, there was, there's always this small gaggle of boys who come up to me and ask for advice <laughs> on how to negotiate such a politically yeah. correct atmosphere. But I think um, that's right. I also think the idea that it's all down to um, Etonians, I think uh, this, that's, I find that such a hilarious argument because it presents itself as an anti-establishment, anti-posh, um, sticking it to the man kind of argument. You know, we really hate Etonians, we hate the privileged, we hate super posh people. That's what these Ramonas are saying. But in truth, what they're really saying is that ordinary voters are such idiots. We're so suggestible, we're so stupid, we're so gullible yeah. that we can be led astray by Jacob Rees-Mogg saying something on TV or by a post or an advert on the side of a bus, whatever else it, it is that they blame it on. What all of that boils down to is, is their belief, and they really hold strongly to this belief, that voters can't be trusted because we're really thick. That's what they're saying. So every time they bash Etonians, actually they're bashing people in Stoke or in Wales or in Essex, where there were huge numbers of Leave voters. That's who they're really bashing because what they're saying is these people are so ill-educated and so ill-informed and so unlike us that they can be led astray by these kind of shiny, posh demagogues. The, I, the, the really interesting thing is that is precisely the argument that was made against the Chartists when they were arguing for the right to vote for working-class men in the 1840s. Literally, the exact argument that was made was that working-class men didn't have sufficient education to be able to resist the temptations of demagoguery. It's exactly the same argument that was made against women having the right to vote in the early 20th century, that all the anti-suffragette arguments were that women were too visceral rather than rational and therefore they wouldn't be able to resist the temptations of demagogic di dictatorship. So we're just seeing the rehabilitation of all these kind of old, historic, poisonous, anti-democratic arguments. Um, and I think the more that we can do to expose that and to reveal the fact that these are not progressive, decent, good, liberal, democratic people, but actually the opposite, the better. Can I say another thing I, of the many things I love about you is that you still go on the BBC and stick it to them, uh, which I won't anymore. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I've, I've decided, I don't know whether you listened to the, the, the podcast I did with Dick the other day, but I really have gone BBC fry in my life now. I can't, there's only one programme left that I can listen to, which is the, the rock show on BBC One with Daniel P. Carter, uh, because there's no politics in that. But everything else on the BBC is absolute, <coughs> relentless, SJW, anti-Brexit yeah, shite. Don't what yeah. Um, I don't actually get invited, on the, uh, invited onto the BBC that much. I do a few, I do a few things, I guess. Um, well, you do Sky, which is, which is the BBC. And I do Sky, which is a bit like the BBC. Um, but I think it's really important to go into the lion's den and to stick it to them, because otherwise it would just be them lot. 
saying their usual crap. And uh, I think audiences are really tired of that. Um, and, you know, whenever I do TV things or radio things, I get loads of emails. People are always really, because I'm not on Twitter, so people are always super angry that they actually have to go to the effort of writing me an email. So it makes them even angrier as they're going through this process. Yeah. They can't believe they have to use so much of their labor to send me a hate, hateful message. Why are you not on so Twitter, by the way? I hate Twitter. Yeah, well, I fair can't enough. even bear the thought of being on it. It just makes me feel ill. Yeah. Um, but I, so I get lots of angry emails from people saying, I wish you were dead, and who are you, and what the, why are you on TV, and I'm going to tell them you're funded by the Koch brothers, all this kind of stuff, which mm. is just relentless abuse, and I just delete it all. Or sometimes I respond saying, um, mm, I fancy you too, shall we meet up? And then that really <laughs> drives them insane. Um, but then I also, the, the thing that's far more interesting than that is that I also get emails from people up and down the country who say, um, thank God someone's saying what I was thinking. And yeah. literally from people who are at the end of their tether, politically speaking, not in life terms, uh, at the end of their tether, politically speaking, who are who cannot believe, I mean, we can't believe it, and we're in the lucky position of having different various platforms from which to express ourselves. So imagine how they feel. They can't believe that every time they turn on the TV or the radio, it's the same stuff. And it's the stuff that doesn't reflect whatsoever what they think or what their neighbours think or what their community thinks. They feel like the media is out to get them. Uh, and that's actually what Donald Trump, who I'm not a huge fan of, but one thing he was very successful at was um, tapping into an anti-media sentiment and a, a feeling among ordinary people that the media was just another wing of the establishment, didn't reflect their views, and in fact was quite hostile to their views. Mm. So I always think it's quite important. I, I can understand your reluctance to do it, um, and s so often it's just a, an attempt to stitch you up. I, I've had that experience many times, yeah. but I think the point of connection with people who don't feel that they've been represented on any level is something still worth giving it a go. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm starting to model myself on, on Paul Joseph Watson, who, who just won't. Yeah, won't. I just think if, you, if you're in control of your, I, don't, I believe that you shouldn't fight battles on terrain of the enemy's, enemy's choosing. You're, you're, you're even braver than I am, and I'm quite brave. I mean, I really totally ruined myself um, taking a jump while I was out fox hunting that I really shouldn't <laughs> have done. And, and I thought, <laughs> you don't want to do it, you're terrified, but if you don't do it, you're not a real man. And, and if this had been a war, you wouldn't have charged the machine gun post and possibly got a VC. You've just been a loser. So I took this jump and I smashed up my, um, my collarbone and uh, crapped several ribs. And then I got a pulmonary em embolism and almost died. So I am quite brave, but I'm not so brave that, <laughs> I, would, uh, that I go into a situation anymore where I'm just going to get shot on by... Yeah, Lefties. I, yes, but I, th I found that it's actually really easy to call these people out because... What's the, what's the secret? The secret is just to expose that... Uh, well, th th the useful thing for me is that I come at it as a kind of Marxist. Yeah. So for you, uh, and so they find it. it difficult to know what to say to me because I always try to out-left them. Yeah. So when yeah. it comes even to something like the European That's Union, I say, how can you as a leftist support an institution which has willfully drowned thousands of black people in the Mediterranean Sea? And then they kind of fall off their chairs because they don't have that argument put to them very often. Or I say, hold on, there was a report by Amnesty International about three weeks ago showing that the European Union has financed prisons in Libya, which has been torturing aspiring migrants to prevent them from going to Europe. How can you support that? Th they don't hear those arguments very often. Usually what they have is some 
toff from the Daily Mail saying, oh, yeah. you know, bloody Europe is bananas and all that stuff. And so they can handle those arguments, but then I find that they often put on the back foot by some of the things that I say. Also, I've been on TV recently with quite a few um, Corbynista media people <coughs> who are the most what, ridiculous. What, not Ash Sarkar? I, sh I was who on... Who fucks like a champion. According <coughs> to her Twitter feed, I mean, imagine. Yeah. No one who fucks like a champion there? actually says they felt like a champion. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, you know, so that's always, always makes me laugh. I was on Politics Live with Ash Sarkar, and it was a really, I probably shouldn't say this, but who, what the hell I will. No one's listening, don't worry. It was worry. a really weird experience because she was sat next to me on Politics Live. It's an hour-long show, and she had a, a notepad. So I glanced at her notepad. There was a whole page of meticulously written notes about me. Um, and also about what to say to she me. She fancies you. No, and, and, and things that she was going to say to me, and none of which she said, which made it even funnier. She didn't get around to saying it. But the point with all of these people is that, particularly with the Corbynista media types, um, who I actually think are very good on TV, but only because right-wing people are often very bad on TV mm. and often feel very defensive or look very defensive, uh, you know, they present themselves as radical Marxists and edgy and, you know, a threat to the state and the status quo. It's complete bunkum. They are, uh, this is the woke section of the bourgeoisie. They've never met a working class person. They have no connections with anyone outside of their tiny bubbles inside London. That's why they're so, they hate Brexit so much. They go along completely with the Ramona idea that Brexit was a cry of the racist or maybe a cry of the left behind, which I think is an even more patronising idea, as if voters in Stoke couldn't possibly be politically opposed to the European Union. They were really just making a cry for help. Come and help me, I need a job. It's such a disturbingly patronising view of those voters. It robs them entirely of their agency. So it goes along with all of those arguments, and it's really easy, in my experience, just to prick that, uh, to prick those bubbles and say to them, um, you know, stop dropping your T's, stop pretending to be down with the kids, because in fact you're an, a painfully middle class, over-educated, PhD-obsessing idiot who um, despises the working classes, has absolutely no connection with them whatsoever, and thinks that the right of a, ma a, a woman who was born a man to, to take a piss in a woman's toilet is the most important issue of our time. Yep. I mean, that's literally <laughs> how... That's literally... So you have... We live in a situation in which millions of working class people have, a, have just made the most rebellious blow in living memory against the status quo and you have these woke Corbynistas saying ah oh, but what about this man in a wig's right to go to the woman's toilet mm. what kind of world are we living in and so uh, that's what I say to them and then they go crazy or they stop talking which is even better I think you're right I think we can we can learn from you and we can learn from the Americans in this respect both Charlie Kirk the guy who founded Turning Point and Ben Shapiro say that the that the best form of defense is attack. You, you have to go in hard with these people. You cannot, because what they try and do always with, with <coughs> people on, on the right, to, you know, loose, loosely on the right, is that they try and make us seem like moral pygmies. And they, they always try and claim the moral high ground. So you have to reverse the position, don't you, by showing yeah. them to be yeah. the dodgy ones. That's exactly right. And, um, and you don't just do that for the hell of it. <coughs> you do it because they are the dodgy ones. Um, it, it, you know, I'm not particularly, I'm not a huge fan of many people on, on the right, except, of course, James and good people like him. Um, but um, in terms of the, where the 
most questionable political ideas and policies and arguments are coming from is undoubtedly from the left, who I think have completely and utterly lost the plot. A really good example of this is knife crime. And I was thinking, I think I'm doing a radio thing on knife crime next week, a debate. And I was thinking, um, the idea that's been pushed by leftists and Corbynistas and others is that it's all down to austerity. So you cut, you make cuts to social services or to social work or to youth clubs. And that's why people are going out stabbing each other to death. And when you think about it, you think, hold on, that's a really racist, classist argument. Because what they're really saying is that without all this expertise in their lives, without the scaffolding of all this kind of you know, middle-class experts who run the welfare state, unless the poor of inner-city London have all of this protection around them, they'll turn into wild animals and go cutting each other's throats in the middle of the street. So you boil it down, you think, that's a really obnoxious, classist, racist, awful argument. And what you want to say to them is, hold on, there have been far graver periods of poverty and austerity in the past, particularly uh -huh. in the 1930s, again in the 19, early 1970s when my parents came here and didn't have a penny to bless themselves with, and they weren't out in the streets stabbing each other to death. What a bizarre argument. So the more that you break it down, the more you can actually turn it on them and say, hold on, the prejudice is not coming from those of us who say we're worried about the fact that a large majority of these knife crimes are committed by black kids. We're worried about what that tells us about black communities and possibly about the, the decay of black families. These are, uh, and also working class white families increasingly. These are, I think, very legitimate moral concerns to have. The prejudice is in fact coming from those who say that unless there's a youth club at the end of your road and a social worker to tell you how to behave, you'll turn into a wild animal and kill your next door neighbour. That's where the prejudice is. That's the racist argument. That's the classist argument. So I think it's it, what we need to do more and more, and by we I don't mean the right, I mean people who are just interested in progressive, good, um, liberal democratic ideas is that we've got to expose that they are the moral pygmy pygmies. They are the ones making the obnoxious arguments about everyday people. Mm. You, you've got the sort of Mrs. Jellyby <coughs> attitude, which, which is very prevalent among the kind of the liberal elite, the remain voting types. They like, they like looking after people from, you know, poor people mm. from foreign countries. They like patronising them. As long as they, they're in the client, the client zone, that's fine. They don't like it when, when these, these poorer people have agency of their own. <coughs> Absolutely. You know, I think I'm in favour of the welfare state in the sense that I think it's quite civilised that a society doesn't let people go hungry, right? If you can't find a job um, for a period of time, I don't think it should last forever, then it's right, I think, that society assists you during that time and helps you out. Hmm. What I do have a problem with is welfareism, which is the growth of the oh. welfare state into this kind of ideology of its own, which now uh, welfareism expands into almost every single person's life at so many intimate and levels. And also the food bank argument, which you see the being wheeled out every time. If you build them, they will come, won't they? Yes, oh. I think that's a really... But, you know, it, I did an essay for The Telegraph a few years ago. This is the first time I... Uh, <laughs> people hated this es essay so much that someone printed it out from the internet, um, which was bizarre because it was in the newspaper, so they should have <laughs> got it from there. Uh, did a poo into a bag. Yeah, you should be gasping because it was a horrific thing to receive in the post. Oh, Put my article into the bag of poo. Sealed it. They sealed it really well. So that was a With relief. a kiss. <laughs> so that was a relief. It was very well sealed. Put it into a uh, jiffy envelope 
And this is the most scary thing. They hand-delivered it to, my, to the spiked offices, which meant I was, like, for a few days, really worried in case oh my God. the poo man was around the corner waiting for me. Um, that's how horrified they were by the, ar- by the argument I made in this essay on welfareism, which is such a simple argument, which is that when the welfare state was founded, this is kind of going back before beverage, in fact, to the oh. early 20th century when the first... Um, expressions of welfareism came into existence. So you had the shift from the uh, poor houses and everything else towards something a bit more institutionalized. The people in that time who were most against institutionalizing welfare were working class people. And the arguments they made were explicit. They said, we are worried that this will uh, naturalize unemployment, that the state will use it as an excuse to say, well, um, you haven't got a job, it's not our fault, here's three bob a week or whatever it was. They were the people who were most antagonized by this. And in fact, if you look at recent opinion polls on people who are most anti-welfare state, it tends to be people in working class and poor communities, whereas the middle classes love the welfare state, which makes perfect sense because the welfare state employs the middle classes, yeah. millions of them, to look after Poor people. So, of course, the middle classes love it because it gives them a sense of purpose and power. The poor hate it because it gives them the opposite of a sense of purpose and power. And what you create is this neo-feudal racket where one section of society is charged with looking after almost every single facet of another section of society's lives, including economic, therapeutic, social, how you raise your kids, every aspect of it. So I think um, the, that's another way in which you can really chip away at the kind of presumed moral authority of the modern left, which is just to say to them, look, this welfare state, because if you look at Corbynistas, it's fascinating. They never argue for full employment anymore. The left in the 60s and 70s, their great rallying cry was full employment. Everyone must have a job. Work is good. It's great. Everyone should be employed. Now they just say, don't cut back on the welfare state. You think, what a dispiriting... <laughs> A pointless rallying cry, which is certainly not going to get any poor people on your side. It's only going to get middle class people on your side because they love the welfare state. I think in the same way that the environmental religion was partly invented (coughs) as a make-work scheme for otherwise unemployable middle-class kids (laughs) who've done their completely worthless degrees in environmental sciences from the University of Easy Access and places like that, or they've done ecology, or marine biology. Yeah, right, I I want to go and dive with (laughs) whales and dolphins and justify my my fun by saying that I'm helping to save the Barrier Reef. It's um, the clerisy. Yes, the clerisy. You're lucky, Brendan, that you are an oik and that you didn't, yeah. you didn't go to university. Because actually, had you, had you been a contemporary of mine um, at, at Oxford, I think you'd have been actually pretty good. You'd have probably got a first. I, I just got a 2-1. You'd, <laughs> but you'd have been at a college like Univ, and you'd have, you'd have worked really hard. And, uh, and, and but generally, I think that people who've gone to university have been um, the opposite of educated. They've yeah. been... They've been Brainwashed. That's the thing. The, the, that's the fascinating thing about university. Now it does the opposite of what it's supposed to do. So yeah. it doesn't broaden your imagination or make you a critical thinker. It does the opposite. So you know, a lot of Ramonas will often say, um, you know, the biggest divide in relation to whether you voted Remain or Leave is whether you went to university. Yeah. And they think that's their trump card. They yeah. Think, <laughs> yeah. This right. proves <laughs> cl- super clever people love the EU. And you think, hold on, it might also prove far more realistically that the university now actually dulls your critical sensibilities and it has become this kind of um, 
factory line turning out people who have the correct way of thinking, who are politically correct, who are pro-bureaucracy, who um, feel, who b buy into all the snowflake stuff like the mental health crisis and the, the problem of freedom of speech and all this other crap that they foist on you the minute you get there. Uh, that's far more realistic. Whereas, you know, the 18 and 19 year olds who refuse to go to university because they want to learn a trade or they want to get a job or they want to have children and set up their own home or whatever else it might be, are the ones who tend to be quite critical. Um, so they are the ones who voted against the European Union, which was a pretty rebellious thing to do in 2016 when the entire establishment was on its knees begging us not to do that. That took a sense of, you know, mm, well, I'm really committed, so I'm going to do it. That, that section of society is far more open to critical thinking now. Um, so I think we live in a society in which the, the moral divide, I mean, it, it's like Disraeli referred to the existence of two Englands. Um, you know, there was an England of a kind of political set, a kind of well-connected set, and then w there was the other England of people who thought differently, behaved differently, and acted differently. I think we're in that situation now, but e in an even more pronounced way. And even people like us and people in this room who presumably have a kind of instinct for critical thinking or maybe being anti-PC or whatever else it might be, even I think we can sometimes lose sight of just how different these two Englands or really two Britons are. Mm. Like if you go to Stoke, right, which I, Stoke has had a huge leave vote. I was there doing any questions on BBC Radio 4 shortly before the referendum. Um, and when I'd been having arguments in London, and I also did a talk at Cambridge University, and a talk at Oxford University, <laughs> Cambridge and Oxford, and various other places where I was arguing for Brexit. So I did a series of talks saying, please vote Brexit, because the EU really stinks. Yeah. Uh, and when you went to these places, people would look at you in horror. They couldn't believe what you were saying. They were just, it was like you were an, an alien. Then I went to Stoke for any questions, and it was, unbelievable. I mean, the audience was full of like school teachers and taxi drivers and builders and all sorts of people, professionals too, all sorts of people who um, couldn't believe the people on the panel who were saying pro-Remain things. Mm. Uh, and it was the most extraordinary experience. And then everyone hung around afterwards and I was talking to them and I'd never been in a room of so many critical thinkers. I'd never been in a room of so many Eurosceptics. And it was a, an entirely different world to the one that I'd spent the previous few months in talking about Brexit. And it's really important that we don't lose sight of that. It's really important that if you're bogged down on Twitter or if you're reading The Guardian or if you're switching on the BBC and all these increasingly limited means we have through which to express ourselves or to connect with people and whatever, it's really important that you don't convince yourself that because everyone is saying Brexit's a disaster or because everyone's saying no deal is the worst thing ever, ever that other people out there think the same. They absolutely do not. And so there is a groundswell. There are millions upon millions of people who disagree with the entire establishment, who disagree with the entire media class. And it's really so important to remember that. Can, really I, say, can I tell you another thing that's worrying me? It's, it's sort of related. Uh, I was watching this, this Netflix series the other day called Sabrina. Do you know about Sabrina? The Teenage Witch? I don't think it is. She is the Teenage Witch, <laughs> oh, but, she, but she's from a, from a, a comic series. Okay. okay. And uh, it, it, it's designed for, I imagine, sort of late teenagers and whatever. And in this episode I saw, there was a girl who decided that she wasn't going to be a girl anymore. She was going to be oh a boy. 
and she wanted to be in the basketball team even though she was a girl and all the jocks said, but you can't be in the basketball team because you're a girl. And then Sabrina did a magic spell on her so that she was really good at basketball. And actually, <coughs> as, as my son very sensibly pointed out, um, this, this is actually a, a very anti-feminist statement. So what, what it shows is that women are going to be really shit at basketball unless they've got a witch doing, doing magic yeah. on them. <laughs> but I, the, the, point, the broader point I'm trying to make is, is that every aspect of our culture now seems to be steeped in the values of identity politics. Yeah. How do we get out of this? I thought that watching a an episode of Glee about three or four years ago, where there was this large, I guess that's the PC word, large, young, uh, male, black student yeah. who decided that he was actually a girl. And the great struggle of his time was his right to use the girls' toilets at school. And on Glee, they refer to this, they refer to him as a, like a modern-day Rosa Parks. And I just thought, this is really, really a repulsive <laughs> argument. The idea that, you know, Rosa Parks, who fought for the right of people to be treated equally in everyday life, was comparable to the right of a, an eccentric teenager to go and take a dump in a girl's toilet. Oh, oh. I mean, it's just so deeply yeah. offensive at every level. Um, but that's what passes for contemporary culture. And I think, see, the trans thing is a good example of the kind of thing I'm talking about, which is if you, if you only followed the media, if you only were in, ensconced in that world, you think it's the most important issue of our time. But no one else is thinking about it. Across the country, no one else is thinking, but oh, you're not. I think about it all the time. You think Brandon. about it all the time. So I, <laughs> I write about it far more than I should, but yeah. only to say, why am I writing about it, really? Yeah. Um, but the thing is, it's like um, no one else is saying to themselves, oh, we have to make gender-neutral toilets, or you know, we have to let little Johnny wear a dress to school, and all this stuff. No one's thinking about that. It's just this kind of... But the problem, I, I don't say this to, to suggest it's not a problem. The problem is that the kind of people you're talking about yeah. have an enormous amount of influence over politics and over media discussion and over the kind of bourgeois ideology as us Marxists used to call it in the old, day, old days. And one of the things they're pushing is the trans thing. The reason that's a problem is because I find the trans idea incredibly Orwellian in fact. And, and what it's really, because I don't think a man can ever become a woman. Sorry, you can take as many hormones as you like. You can change your name. I will call you by your new name because I'm a polite person. I was raised to be polite. But I don't think you're a woman. I think it's a sham. And also, I think the opposite can't happen. A, a woman can't become a man. So that's my opinion. But the thing is that uh, when you look at why people are pushing this, particularly the political class and kind of influential people, it really does start to look like a way of chipping away at the values that most people hold dear which is the values of family life and the idea that there are mothers and fathers and the idea that men and women possibly play different roles, particularly in relation to children. Mm. Yep. All those things which huge numbers of society hold on to as a, a, a kind of a, a core organizing principle of their lives and their communities' lives and, and life in general is just constantly being chipped away at by these people who studied queer studies at Goldsmiths University or somewhere who've never met anyone outside of not even London, but central London. Um, and it's just it constantly th those people in a very unilateral, quite dictatorial fashion are chipping away at this. And it's the point George Orwell made. George Orwell said, the control of language is always about controlling thought. So his obsession with newspeak 
was not simply because he thought it was bad to make up new words, because he recognized that controlling language was a means of controlling how people think and, by extension, how they behave. So when people are inventing all these bullshit new phrases like Z instead of he or she, um, and all these kind of gender fluid terms, mm. gender fluidity always makes me, sounds like incontinence to me, such a bizarre <laughs> phrase. When they're inventing all these things, it really is actually about changing how people think about everyday life and then eventually how they behave. That's why I think it's really important to push back against it. Yeah, I, I hesitate to make this point, but isn't it a bit like um, Marxist dialectic? The, the, <laughs> the way that, that, that the kids are being trained to think now, it's in terms of, of victimhood and power relationships. So um, yes and no. Uh, yes in the sense that I think um, the use of the education system to push a lot of these ideas is really, really worrying, which is why I'm in this really curious position. I'd like to know what you think about this. I find myself feeling incredibly sympathetic to those Muslim parents in Birmingham. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, well, I'm torn because on the yeah. one hand, I think the fact that these Muslim parents are saying, you know, get LGBT stuff out of our schools, I think actually speaks to one of the problems with multiculturalism, which is if you create these kind of very distinctive communities and say to everyone, go and do your own thing, it's wonderful, we love it, then eventually you'll be in a situation where people don't adhere to the core values of our society. And one of the core values of our society, since the 1960s anyway, is that homosexuality is fine, not a crime, so calm down. So if there are significant sections of society that don't adhere to that, I think that is a function of the divisiveness of multiculturalism. So that's the first point. But the second point is, these parents in Birmingham have a point, which is that when it comes to sexual matters and moral matters, I think parental sovereignty should be more important than the educational establishment's mm. desire to inculcate the right way of thinking into five and six-year-olds. Who the hell do they think they are? So. Um, so you're right that I think the use of the education system to kind of train people to think in the correct way is going to make them for a, a far less intellectually curious, PC, boring, conformist society. And that's got to be challenged in any way that we can. And if those Birmingham parents are doing it, then more power to them, in my view. But I wouldn't call it Marxism. And in fact, the point I make to right-wing people, so I'll make it to you as well, is that um, if it's Marxism you're worried about, which is fine, people that's fine to worry about Marxism. I actually think you should be really chilled out about what's happening in relation to the contemporary left and their embrace of identity politics and their embrace of woke, pro-trans, divisive, identitarian, racially aware politics. Because in my mind, that really reveals how uninfluential Marxism is. Because Marxism was entirely about class. Now, you can be a Marxist or you can be an anti-Marxist. I, I really have no beef about that whatsoever. But Marxist politics, and most of left-wing politics, was about class. It was about economics. It was about who owns the means of production and who doesn't own the means of production. It was quite narrow. Yeah. The, the, the thing about the contemporary left is that they don't give a damn about class. They have no interest in class whatsoever. They're obsessed with race. They're obsessed with gender. They're obsessed with um, sexuality. They're obsessed with genitals and toilets yeah. and all these bizarre things. So I think actually what that new left speaks to is a shift away from questions of economics and class towards questions of culture. And I think, so I think the right should calm down about Marxism, because I really do think it's dead and it's not coming back, so that's fine. It's, it belongs in the 20th century. But it should get incredibly exercised about the new left, which is incredibly divisive, 
and authoritarian and conformist and all those other things. So mixing those two mm. things up, I think, is sometimes unhelpful. In the nicest way, you did actually make the point I was trying to make, um, which, which is simply that, that well, I said it was like Marxism. I didn't say right. it was Marxism, right. because I think that's what's happened. I think that class has been replaced by different forms of identity different forms of, I mm. it, it's still about victims and oppressors, but this time the, the oppressor is, well, the top, top, yeah. top dog is the white man. And then you, then you have a hierarchy of victimhood. But I would say, yes, uh, I don't necessarily disagree with that, but I, but I think class is different to all other identities in the sense that class can be transcended. And I think that's mm. why they hate class politics. Because if you look back to radical class politics in the 1800s in particular, it kind of lost its way in the 1900s, particularly with Stalinism. That was dodgy. Um, but if you look at the kind of, uh, you know, with Marxism, I'm like, you know, when people say about rock bands, I like the early stuff. I'm like that with Marxism. I like the early stuff. The later stuff, not so good. Um, but if you look back at the early stuff, it was, the point was that the working, the point was to end the working class so that you'd create a world in which there was no longer a working class. And it's worked pretty much. Uh, well, but and it wasn't about the celebration of the working class identity. It was about finding a way to end the working class identity by having greater production and growth and equality and all those other things. Now, people can say that's a pipe dream. I don't care. You can say whatever you like. It's a free country, almost. But the point is that the difference with identity politics now is that it's about celebrating inherited traits, yeah. things over which we have no control, things over which you can't actually make that much of a difference. Um, and so it's very fixed and rigid and, as a consequence, incredibly divisive. Um, class was actually, the aim of class was to be a universalizing um, uh, identity. So we're all working class together, let's gang up and kill the rich. That was the idea. Whereas I think what we have now, what's replaced it, is these increasingly fragmenting identities. And you know, you, not only do you have, like, say for example, you don't just have the trans identity, but you have the black trans identity, who are more oppressed than the white trans identity. And it just goes on and on and on. And so they're fragmenting more and more. And what you end up, end up with is an incredibly fragmented, divided, destructive society. Um, that's, believe it or not, that's not actually what Karl Marx wanted. Brendan, we've now got a very, very exciting moment in the Delling pod. Our guest <coughs> is going to turn up. Where is the, where is the guest? Who is it? Come here, guest. There's only one person on the Delling pod. <laughs> we haven't met him before, have no, you? Never. No, No. And we're going to play a game. Hello, Brendan. Nice to meet you. To which this Dick's arrived, everybody. And we're going to, by popular request, we're going to play a game. Special edition yes no game. Yes no game. <laughs> Do you know Is that how to play all we're it? Allowed to say, yes or no? no. Yeah. Can we give an explanation? No, yeah, that, no, no, well, no, well kind, kind of the of rules of are a yes or a no, not necessary with an explanation because we're tight on time, keeping it completely. Oh, yeah. It, yeah. It, it's different, but. Uh, they should be self-evident. Yeah, now, yeah. Oh just no. a warning, some of them may not be real people and some of them are definitely dead. Um, okay. And the first one is kind of like a lie detector test to see whether or not the system's working. Okay. Shall I go? Yes. And is it just Brendan answering? No, or well, I think we're both. No, we're both, okay, both, right? both, yeah. Okay, Jacob Rees-Mogg. So yes or a no? Yes, yes. Uh, no. Oh, yes. Right, okay. Uh, Eric Idle. Eric Idle, yes. Um, 
No. No. <laughs> no. John Cleese. No. No. Mm. Ooh, ooh. Rod Roger Daltrey. Yes. 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 Come on. Yes. Yes. Mervyn King. Yes, yeah, Brendan. It's, it, you're, you're There's kind of a Brexit yeah, theme Brendan, running. Brendan, through Brendan, yes. Brendan's struggling here. I think yes. yeah, you, you've got your Pythons in the wrong order. One's okay. a Lever and the other's a Remainer. Okay. But uh, that's a, that's that could be a whole new discussion. <laughs> uh, Gina Miller. No. No. I, I like the no. way the audience are joined. Yeah. Yeah, the the yeah. special friend. It feels so Again, powerfully about this. Can we say she can no? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can. You can. She can kind of be no. credited with uh, saving the whole situation. Yes. But you know, but again, still no. Again, no. another bit. Yeah. Big uh, no. John Burko. Oh no. No. Uh, uh, special friend. What do you think of John Burko? No. Bollocks. Um, as it said, one of the placards on the pro. Brexit thing said bollocks to Burko. Bollocks to Burko. Yeah, good answer. sticker. I'd get that as a T-shirt. Alice Vidal. Oh, oh, Alice. She's the Do the co-leader of the AFD. Oh yeah. no. She, no, no, she's great. If you, Is you she? yeah, you check out her speech. She's uh, a lesbian. I'm still saying no. She's quite. <laughs> she's quite. She's quite hot. I formed a rift. But obviously, no use to us. If you're a lesbian, I found the fault line between you two. <laughs> we, th you found quite a big fault line, Dick. <laughs> I think this could be war. I mean, it could be that Brendan never, ever comes on the podcast again. Now that you would be a great shame. Yes, I think no. everyone would agree that would be a terrible So I'm shame. saying ya yeah right. to Alice yeah, Vedel. Dr. Alice Vedel. Frankie Boyle. No. No. And he, he used to be yes. He used to be, yeah. A lot of these people did. Steve Baker. Yes. Oh, so yes. yes. Matt Ridley. Big fan. Yes. 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 James Dreyfus. Yes. 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 We loved that series, didn't yeah, we? What gimme, was gimme, it? Gimme, gimme, gimme. Very good. Um, Fiona Onasanya. No. Oh no! What the, the, the popular with, with the audience? With her um, against Brexit. What's it called? That <laughs> ankle thing? Tag. Ankle tag. Yes. Definitely no. Um, George Osborne. Lovely George. No. 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 Uh, Ramsey Bolton. <laughs> yeah. Yes. No, come yes. on, he's no. terrible. Ramsey. Yes, but in a, in a kind of in a so bad it's a good kind of way. Thing. Sorry, oh, I don't watch Game of Thrones. Sorry, uh, yeah, you'll be lost for the next no. four oh, no. then. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> We're on our own here. Arya Stark. Oh, we l oh yes, yes. Arya, I, I hope she gets the Iron Throne. Uh, is, that, is that a bit feminist of me? Who plays but her? That's the question. Well, she was um, Maisie, oh. Maisie Williams. Yeah, yeah I don't like yeah. her. No. You don't a like Maisie Williams? No, a lot of these thing. have great characters, but they're awful people yeah. in real they life. They probably went sure. to one of those stage schools where they get invited. Uh, in my, ne my next one is a, uh, a case in point. Cersei Lannister. Well, as, as, a, as a character, love love her. Okay, but then Lena Headey. I'm, I'm guessing... I'm guessing... Rabid, I'm guessing rabid no. uh, Remainer. Well, they all yeah, are, yeah. aren't they? Apart from... Who? Last three coming up. <laughs> Oliver Cromwell. Yes, and then no. Ah! Mm. Oh, he's not... Yes, he's to not, begin he's with. He's not... He didn't go to university. And no, when he was killing the levellers. Ah, next question, oh. John Lilburn. Oh, yeah. oh he's coming in his trousers. Yes. Oh. The biggest yes. <laughs> that was purely for you. Oh, and it my was. whole life. And can if I say you yes were a no, well? I was going to walk no, out. The Lil no, Lilburn is my all-time hero. But when, when Dick looked up the levellers, he got the Love bloody them. pop group. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and there like is only New Model Army. If you look one up New Model Army, but yes. you, pop group too. We like the levellers, but you wouldn't have been a digger, would you? I think diggers, the problem with diggers is that they were just lazy. They just went and lived on land, whereas the levellers were incredibly politically engaged. They were populist. Lilburn is the uh, greatest ever English man who ever lived. So, well, Reed, uh, John uh, Reed. Resounding yes. John you Reed found his G-spot, Hold on, Dick. John, John, 
John Rees, who was in the SWP, so we're not inclined to like him, has written a fantastic history of the levelers, which I recommend to all of you. Really, really, really good. Well, we'll wind up finally with Titania McGrath. Yes. Oh, yes. 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 Yeah, she writes a column. He writes a column for Spiked, of course. Yeah, don't, don't presume her gender. Right? <laughs> I think, thank you, Dick, for giving us a You're happy finish. Nice as, as it's known. It <laughs> uh, right, I'll leave. And, and thank you yeah, also. Thank you. What do you know, Dick? You've got to stay for Thank you. Thank you to our, our lovely, lovely special friend. Is, it, is that it? Have we got, we got two minutes? Two minutes. We Maybe doing? we can have time for one question. This lady here. Hello, lady. Special <laughs> <laughs> friend. I don't know if I need a microphone or not. One I second, one second, one second. Talk without one. I've been a head teacher in a school and I'm used to a addressing assembly. Um, I work at the UN. The UN are very worried about Brexit because they're worried about workers' rights and women's rights in particular. And they have asked the UK government, which they have called callous and misogynistic in the way it treats women, to bring on board UN rules um, for women, no matter what happens with Brexit, to try and make sure that those rights are not undermined. Um, we have a petition on the government's website at the moment asking for that to happen. And we have a way to help the women born in the 1950s who've been so discriminated against, and that's who I represent. How would you reply to the UN? Well, I'm very worried about the UN, which I think yeah, is yeah. quite... Wow. I think is uh, uh, an increasingly authoritarian, anti-Zionist slash anti-Semitic and murderous institution. Let's look at what they did in Somalia in the 1990s, what they did in Yugoslavia in the late 1990s. The U I, I will not take, not from you, you seem like a perfectly pleasant person, I will not take moral lectures from such an immoral institution as the United Nations, yeah. ever. But more... But more importantly, uh, more importantly than that, is I, I've heard this argument many times that we need to protect workers' rights and women's rights and leaving the EU will undermine those things and Remainers say that all the time. I think that's a real insult to the generations and generations of working-class people and women in the United Kingdom who fought and secured those rights long before the EU ever came into existence, which was in 1993. It's an insult to Sylvia Pankhurst of the suffragettes. It's an insult to... Um, the Indian women in their saris at Grumwick in the 1970s who um, went on strike for the right to uh, equal pay and so on. It's an insult to the women of Dagenham who went on strike for the right to equal pay. It's an insult to Barbara Castle. It's an insult to generations and generations of British people who actually fought tooth and nail for workers' rights and women's rights. And just because they've been codified, actually in a way that undermines them, by the European Union doesn't mean we should stick with the European Union. British people are more than capable of defending their own rights. They've done it for generations. We don't need John claude Juncker and other drunks and lunatics and bureaucrats to do it for us. I agree with Brendan. Thank you for being a lovely audience. Hooray! Thank you. Uh, oh, great. Well done. Fantastic. 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 Fantastic.